0: Hello friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, July the 10th. We continue our study of Job this week. We're going to focus on chapters 34 through 37. We've watched Job and as his three friends have tried to help him, but they've really only made things worse. And finally, he has come to this place where he cries out in the midst um, of, of his torment for an explanation, for some word from God, for some way out of this terrible situation. And then suddenly, without any introduction, this young guy named Elihu, who's been standing by, watching, listening, addresses Job and his friends. And we're not told anything much about him. He suddenly appears in, in that unique way God has of speaking in ways that we can't imagine. But he begins to examine the problems and the thinking of Job and the friends. And the unique thing about Elihu's presentation is that he does not attempt to speak out of his experience. He is not an old man who has been taught certain lessons by life. His claim is that he is speaking out of what God has taught him and by the Spirit, and therefore that his sharing the insights and the wisdom of God. And, and we unfold what Elihu says, and, and we can see that it's true. And it is in accord with the revelation of God other places found in scripture so that God is speaking and answering some of the cries of Job's tormented heart through this young man. And then in chapters 32 and 33, we see Elihu's general examination of the problem. But then in chapter 34, he takes up Job's argument and Job's view of God in some detail. And he opens with an invitation to all who are listening to join in the judgment. And then Elihu said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know, for the ear test words as the palate taste food. He's actually quoting the words of Job here. And let us choose what is right. Let us determine among ourselves what is good. That's chapter 34, first four verses. So frequently we find in the pages of scripture, this invitation by the spirit of God to reason with him, to let our minds follow after the paths that God's great mind has already gone. Isaiah said, come now, let us reason together, says the, the Lord. Though your skins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are red, th- Though they are as red as crimson, thou sh- they shall become like wool. That's Isaiah chapter 1. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I speak as to sensible men. Judge for yourselves what I say. So here's this invitation to all of us to join in and judging the truth of what Elihu is about to say about God. And he begins to examine, once again, Job's view of God, Job's problem with God. And this is the way he puts it in verse five. For Job has said, I am innocent and God has taken away my right. That's Job's first problem with God. He says, hey, I haven't done anything wrong. And he infers from that that God should bless him. Instead of blessing him, God has denied him that right to blessing. This is the type of theology that Job had. Job had a very early prosperity gospel. I do not think that there's anything more subtle in our lives than this instinctive feeling that we all have that if we behave ourselves, God ought to give us blessing and prosperity. Think through our own motives right now and see if that is not underlying a lot of what we think about God. If I straighten out my life, if I watch myself so that I don't get into trouble, if I vote in the the correct way in the election, then God is going to take care of me and everything's going to be all right. And if he does not, if we go through trial, we immediately show how we reflect this view because I say, What's wrong? Why should this happen to me? It's one of the most frequent charges against God. And this was Job's charge. And God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. And that is what The friends had called him. They had said he he was a liar. He was a hypocrite, that he actually had done something terrible and that he was not telling them about it. So he said, hey, in spite of my right, I am counted as a liar. That that is man's treatment of me and God's likewise is unjust. My word, my wound is incurable, though I'm without transgression. Now, that is Job's problem. He sees God as both unjust and unfair unwilling to explain what is going on. And so Elihu says in verse seven, what man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water, who goes in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. For he has said it profits a man, nothing that he should take delight in God. What a strange argument to hear from a man who had begun with that great cry of blessed be the name of the lord the lord gave and the lord has taken away blessed is his name now his position is as elihu says he is like the ungodly he has the same attitude that they have he says what advantage is it to me to behave myself i might just as well have sinned that is the argument that is going to be examined in detail in this passage, how many of us have talked or certainly thought the same way? We must remember that at the beginning of this book, Satan declared that he was going to bring Job to a place where he would curse God to his face. There are two things that Satan must do in order to make Job curse God. He must make Job distrust God and feel that God has treated him unfairly. That's the first step. And then there will come a time when in the conviction that he uh, has been unfairly treated, he will actually curse God, shake his fist in God's face, and more importantly, turn his back on him. That is what Satan is after. Now we see how close Job gets, right? We see how close it is. Um, He's not done that yet, and he does not do it. God intervenes by some wise words of this spirit-filled young man to keep Job from going to that final step. In verses 10 through 30, Elihu takes up the truth about God, what God is really like. In verses 10 through 12, he says, God cannot be unjust. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will requite him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. He says that no matter how long it may take, God is going to treat the wicked with judgment and bless the righteous. Now, he may not do it right away, but he will do it. For Elihu declares, God cannot deny himself. He cannot be unjust. And when we say that God treats us unfairly or does something that is wrong, we are really saying God is denying his own nature and character. Earlier in the book, several of the friends of Job had argued that God is so mighty that no matter what he says, man has to take it. But Elihu is not saying that. He is saying God is mighty. It is true. But when he does something, it is always in accordance with his nature. Scripture teaches us that. In James, we learned that God is called the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's no changeability in God. He is always true to his character of love, and we are invited to believe that no matter what it looks like at the moment. That's where faith will rescue us from the kind of temptation that Job is confronted with now. Elihu's next point is that God is beyond accountability to man who gave, who gave him charge over the earth and who laid on him the whole world. If he should take back his spirit to himself and gather to himself, his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Godless men are always saying to God, in effect, leave me alone. I don't need you. I don't want you in my life. Now, what if God did that? What if he actually removed every bit of himself from them? Well, they would collapse instantly. God gives them the very breath that they breathe. Their very ability to function, our very ability to function comes from the hand of God. And the man or woman who speaks out against the creator and challenges God is doing so by the very power that God himself supplies. Well, then, as Elihu says, who gave him charge over the earth? Well, no one did. You see, God is sovereign. He is the originator of all things. He is not accountable to us. And so Elihu's third point is that we get our sense of justice from God himself. He teaches us justice. In verse 16, if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king worthless one and to nobles wicked man who shows no partiality to princes, no regards nor regards the rich, no more than the poor for they are all the work of his hands. And a the moment they die at midnight, the people are shaken and pass away and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. We, we people, we, we, us humanity who, who, go so loudly about justice, who always want God to treat us with justice, are the very ones who respond with flattery to rulers or show partiality to people who are in authority. But God does not do that. Elihu argues here that God governs without partiality. And how can you do that without justice? How can man be more just than God? And his fourth point is that God does not even require investigation for his eyes are on the ways of a man and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves, for he has not appointed a time for any man to go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. God does not need to hold a trial in order to condemn us or set us aside if we're misbehaving. He knows what is going on. He sees the depths of the human heart. He understands the thoughts of our mind. If we read Psalm 139, we see how the psalmist cries out in in just absolute marvel at God's ability to understand his thoughts from from what would appear to be so far away, even before they take shape in his mind and heart. God knows them all. Elihu goes on and says, thus, knowing their works, he overturns them in the night. They're crushed. He strikes them from, for their wickedness in the sight of men because they turned aside from following him. That's the issue, isn't it? That, that the standard of performance, which God righteously expects of men, how hard is it for us to learn that the only way we can properly relate to life is to include God and begin with him? He holds the world in his grasp. Anything else is totally unrealistic living. Those who turn aside from him and had no regard for any of his ways so that they caused the cry cry of the poor to come to him and he heard the cry of the afflicted. They're simply showing that they do not want God. And God judges on that basis. There's no other standard acceptable to him. When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him? How are you going to summon God to a trial and make him speak? Whether it be a nation or a man, that a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people. In other words, who can call God to account or appeal his decision? There is no way we can do this. And there's no need to do it because God is always consistent with himself. And so Elihu concludes verses 31 through 33 with the statement, in effect, that God accepts no substitutes for righteousness. These words are somewhat confused in the Hebrew text and, and the English is not very clear. So, so we're going to, to read this section from the New English Bible, which maybe puts it just a little bit clearer here in verses 31 through 33. But suppose you will say to God, I have overstepped the mark. I will do no more mischief, vile wretch that I am, but you are my guide. Whatever wrong I've done, I will do no more. Will will he, at those words, condone your rejection of him? It is for you to decide, not me. But what can you answer? Good question, isn't it? What he is saying is that somebody might say, well, all right, I got into trouble. I did something that was wrong, but I'm not going to do it anymore. I'll reform my life and watch in that area, but I'm still going to run my life myself. I'm still going to do it myself. This is called the self-help movement. And friends, billions of dollars have been made by authors, by lecturers, by podcasts, all on self-help and Elihu says, well, can you say that to God? He will not accept that. Reform is not what he is after. It is repentance and relationship that God desires. Surrender of the right to run our life. It is giving up the right to self-help. That is what he's after. And he will accept no other basis of relationship with him. So now, Elihu closes with God's problem with Job. Verse 34 and on. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. For he adds his rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multitude, multiples um, his words against God, multiplies his words against God. What Elihu is saying here is that Job is obviously speaking out of ignorance of the nature and the true character of God, and therefore he needs further treatment. Would that Job were tried to the end, he says. Not because this young man wants to increase his agony But because only that will bring Job to the truth, so he asks that it goes on until Job sees what he's doing. Job is a righteous man. His heart is right. He wants to serve God. But he thinks that he can do it by his own just efforts. The toughest lesson God has to teach humanity, has to teach human beings, is the lesson of seeing the evil and what we think is nothing but good. We always think that our efforts to try to behave ourselves by obeying the truth as we understand it is acceptable to God. The hardest lesson of life is to learn that our righteousness is filthy rags in his sight. It is only dependence on his gift of righteousness that will ever be acceptable in his sight. And that is what Job is finally learning. It is the struggle of Romans 7, way back here in the Old Testament, in the first book ever written. Paul, whose heart was right, wanted to do what God wanted and was trying his best to do it, but instead it all fell apart and he cried out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And the word of faith comes in, it is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. You are righteous, I am righteous, not by trying but by accepting what God has said by his gift of righteousness. Now, that's what we have here. Remember that God initiated this contest, not Satan. God said to Satan, hey, notice my friend Job here. You you see what you can do with him. Because God had something to teach this man, and maybe that is what God is saying to a lot of us. When we think our heart is absolutely right before him, when we think that our cause is completely just and maybe even God ordained, when we think our heart is absolutely right before him, we have failed to grasp the one basis on which we can be right before him. And that is why trouble often comes. So we're going to move quickly through these next three chapters, um, really very quickly, because Elihu now answers in detail Job's ignorant argument. First, he states it in chapter 35. Do you think this... To be just, do you think it is my right before God that, that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? That is what Job is saying. God, God is unjust. I might as well have gone out and lived like the rest of them. Why should I have kept myself clean? I might as well have been as mean, as dirty, as vicious, as self-centered as anybody else. Listen, I've had people say that to me. I, perhaps I've even thought that, right? It's a common argument. As though the purpose of being righteous is to minister to ourselves. But now Elihu examines that. First, he says, you're very inconsistent here. Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than you. That is, we can't, we can't do anything to them. They're up there. They're floating along. We can't even reach them. And so he says, it's like that with God. If, if you've sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And, and if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness, the son of man. In other words, hey, God's unaffected. He's not acting toward us out of spite or out of personal anger at us. What we do or do not do does not change God or affect him in any way. Therefore, How can he be unjust to us if he's not affected by anything that we do? And he points out that Job's argument, therefore, is totally inconsistent. But when Elihu goes on in a most helpful passage to show us why God does appear to be indifferent to us and why he does appear to be unaffected by what happens to us. Verse nine, because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the Almighty. But none says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, who makes us wiser than the birds of the air? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Why is God silent? Men cry for help, but God knows what they are crying for is merely relief. That is all. They want to be taken out of the harmful, painful effects of their selfish ways. We want to be taken out of the harmful, painful effects of our selfish ways and then allowed to go right back to being selfish. Nobody is concerned about God's glory and about being taught by God and learning at his hand and at his feet. Rather, we are simply crying out for deliverance. They want to use God and to that kind of an appeal, God is silent. Perhaps this is why my prayers seem often unanswered. It's my selfishness has produced agony in my life, and all that I want is to escape the penalty. I'm not concerned at all about God himself. And that is one reason for God's silence. But then Elihu points out there's another reason in verse 13. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. It's a reference to Job's words about wanting to have a trial before God, how he would be his own defense attorney and how he would prove that that he was in the right and God's treatment of him was unjust. And Elihu says, how can you say that to God? Do you think God is really waiting for you to prove him wrong? And now, because his anger does not punish and he does not greatly he transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk and he multiplies words without knowledge. How faithful this young man is to put it as gently as he can. He speaks the truth in love. We love that expression. We overuse that expression. He says, Job, the problem is you're going to prove God is wrong and you're right. How then can God respond to that? He doesn't punish you for it. He's patient with you. He doesn't strike you down when you talk that way, but you, you have utilized his patience to speak words that are without knowledge. You speak, you speak out of ignorance. And then in chapters 36 and 37, we have a great revelation of the glory of God. And notice how it begins with a claim on Elihu's part to speak with the divine authority in chapter 36. And Elihu continued and said, bear with me a little and I'll show you. For I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. In other words, this, is, this isn't from me. And ascribe righteousness to my maker. And that's the place to start in all human reasoning. God is right. And therefore, every, anything that deviates from what he says is wrong. That is the way that we can tell the difference. Do not start with, I can't start with, I'm right because I feel this way. <clears throat> that's what gets us into trouble. We have to start with God is right and I must agree with him. And this is where he starts in verse 4, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. N- now some of the commentators have thought that by that he means himself, <clears throat> and that would be brash and, and an arrogant statement, but that's not what he means. If if you turn over to chapter 37 verse 16, We notice who he refers to when he says one who is perfect in knowledge. And he asked Job, do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? He means God. Obviously, he means God. Therefore, his claim here in 36 is that he is speaking with the wisdom and the authority and the knowledge of God. And then in verse 5 through 15, he declares that God is both merciful and just. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any but his mighty in <clears throat> strength of understanding he does not keep the wicked alive but gives the afflicted their right God is merciful and he is just and he and he and demonstrates first by his treatment of kings then he declares to them their work and their transgressions he opens their ears to instruction if they hearken to serve him, they complete their days in prosperity. But if they do not hearken, they perish by the sword. And then God demonstrates his justice by this treatment of the proud. And once again, we have passages, verses 13 through 14, that's really confused uh, in, in English. And, and so um, some other translations that the New English Bible, proud men rage against him and do not cry to him for help when caught in his toil. So they, they die in their prime like male prostitutes worn out. That leads Elihu then to show how God uses affliction. He delivered the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Is God trying to get our attention by some pain or adverse circumstance, some pressure that we're going through? he, He is opening our ear. He wants us to listen to what he is saying to us. And that brings us to a very vivid description of Job's perilous position which this young man points out in faithfulness in verse 16 he also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping that what was set on your table was full of fatness god has blessed you job in the past but you are full of the judgment on the wicked judgment and justice sees you you you're preoccupied with justice here as though that were the ground on which you could stand before god Beware, lest wrath entice you into scoffing, and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Then he concludes that section by warning Job, will will your cry avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed. Do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction." This final word to Job in this great passage in, in which he sets this marvelous language of the glory of God, and it runs from verses 22 through chapter 27, and here are some of the highlights. First, God is beyond men's instruction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? And then there's another behold in verse 26. God is beyond men's understanding. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. And then another, behold, in verse 30, God acts beyond men's rigid categories and reasons. Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these, by by storm and lightning, he judges people. He gives food in abundance. God uses natural powers for both blessing and judgment alike. And then beginning with 37, there's such this description of of a great electric storm that many of the commentators feel Um, was an actual occurrence that the storm began to break out, maybe even at this moment. And and Eli who sort of uses this as this vivid example of what he's been saying about God. And in this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place, hearken to hear the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth after his voice roars, he thunders with majestic voice, and does not restrain the lightnings when the voice is heard. And he goes on to speak of how God sends snow and rain and tornadoes, the whirlwinds and frost. He controls the cycles of the weather. And then he tells us why. He says that God has many reasons for doing these things. We're, we're not always certain what they are. And then God's wisdom is inscrutable. And, then, and, and he says, do you know how God lays his command on them? Do you know the balancings of clouds? Can you, like him, spread out the skies? And Job can do none of these things. Job cannot explain them. Job cannot duplicate them. Job cannot command them. He closes with a beautiful picture of the matchless majesty of God. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with terrible majesty, the Almighty. We cannot find him. He is great in power and justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. All the way through the scripture, from beginning to end, the only man or woman who ever receives anything from God is the one who comes with a humble heart, a humble and contrite heart. If I think that we have got something to offer him or that we have made achievements that nobody else can equal, we cut ourselves off from the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But the person who comes humble, waiting on God, asking him to teach, will find that God will pick him up in grace and power and glory and restore him. And that is what is going to happen to Job. And the very next voice that we hear will be the voice of God himself speaking directly to Job as the 38th chapter opens. Amen, and God bless.